Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 459 for February 25th, 2016. The jazz session is member supported. Become a member today for just five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You can also support the show by starting your Amazon shopping at thejazzsession.com slash Amazon. Everything you buy helps the show at no additional cost to you. Thanks. On this episode, saxophonist Josh Rutner. His new album is Rockabye Battleship. From it, here's the opening track, Sprung Up, Wound Down. If the seasons of the year mark the periods of a man's life, one might think of spring as the beginning, birth, and throughout the fantasies and innocence of childhood. While summer, representative of adolescence, is a time of anxiety and insecurity for a young boy, a period of experimentation, discovery of love, the foundation of character. Autumn, the season of man. excited to welcome Josh Rutner back to the show. Uh, Josh has been here several times uh, with the Respect Sextet, a band that he founded uh, years and years ago now, well well more than a decade ago. And uh, Josh has a new solo album out, uh, which is really absolutely fabulous. And uh, it's called Rockabye Battleship. Josh, it's great to have you on the show and congratulations on the record. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be back once more with you here on the jazz session i i can taste the sincerity Um, (laughs) come on i'm being serious no that's fabulous uh (laughs) this this album is uh is a long time in the making and i should say i think i probably know you better personally than any person i've ever interviewed on this show and i feel like i've had almost like an artist share look at this album because i've been hearing kind of pieces of it over the years and it seems like a a labor of love in the in the purest sense. I mean, I really feel like I'm inside your brain when I hear this record because of I know the kind of music that you like and and the diversity of elements represented in this record. It really feels like a sonic picture of you to me. And I thought maybe we could start just talking about the the fairly long process from conception to to realization and and how you went about it. Yeah. Uh, so this album definitely speaks to me the same way. I think of it sometimes uh, as as like a mixtape that I put together to, you know, to represent myself. But I just happen to be playing all of the tracks. So in that sense, it pulls together a lot of um, a lot of covers. And then even some of the tracks that I wrote are sort of um, pulling in elements from from the outside. Um, yeah, it started about about four years ago, almost to the day from when we're recording this, 
um, in early 2016. Um, I started uh, with my friend Phil Weinrobe. Phil is a is a friend of mine actually from when we were uh, early teens. We went to camp together, and one day in New York, I was coming home from my uh, then job uh, ushering at Jazz at Lincoln Center, and I took the C train home. And on the way, and when I got home, I saw an email. And it was from Phil saying, I think I saw you on the train. I haven't seen you in 10 years, but I think I saw you on the train. <laughs> Do you play saxophone? Um, he's, he saw my saxophone with me. So it was an amazing, uh, it was amazing to get back together with him after all that time. And he had since gotten really into studio stuff and he had been running a studio um, in on the Lower East Side. And uh, he, he is basically the guy who kind of made this very ambitious project possible uh when it is completely improbable uh in the sense that we spent uh in this little basement studio you know over 150 hours uh, of studio time whether that be me uh recording overdubs or me bringing in you know kind of person by person uh guests to fill in the spots um i saw the album a lot of times as well as kind of like a film that required certain scenes you know to be edited in so you know, we have everything, but we're missing a bass. So we need a bass here or we need some sort of percussive element here. Um, and and this was all done kind of after the fact. So in a sense, not very filmically. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was very by the seat of the pants and, and, and having such a long time to sit with it and to play with it. And I did so much uh, editing on my own um, and, and just little mixes and trying them out for a couple weeks of listening and then go back in the studio and and tweak something or uh, or get rid of something entirely. Uh, it, it was a real a real pleasure to have this much time. I'm so glad it the it took this long. For me, the hardest part of writing a poem is knowing when it's finished. And I wonder if any of that uh, that idea applies to this, especially given the number of years that it kind of sprawled across and the the number of people involved, the number of uh, different styles of music that are on the record. Was it hard to know? Was it hard to get to a point to just say, "Okay, it's ready now"? I I think track by track, not not really. Um, at, it, it definitely it definitely um, it, it was easy to to get a sense of what whether something was missing usually for me. And you'll hear some some of the tracks are actually quite spare. Um, and I really I really liked that. I liked having little little uh, little snippets of things, little interstitial things. Uh, between more substantial tracks and I didn't feel the need to keep adding and adding but there are some tracks that are quite dense and it really was like uh you know let's go add something uh add something else and more and more and then in the in the in post kind of working through what my options were and maybe even seeking things out from other tracks but once things kind of settled in it was more just an issue of I mean a practical issue of like finding time like I would love this person to play here on this track, well, how do I get this person and me and Phil in the studio at the same time with me, you know, working a day job and having a family? Uh, it's just practically really tough. And especially when you're, you know, you're relying on the kindness of good friends, uh, you, you want to be as, as flexible as possible. So a lot of the, a lot of the time spent was just, you know, either me sitting on it and listening or just the practicality of getting people into the studio uh, at their own time. And because it was done so um, 
I say piecemeal, but I mean it in a, in a positive way. Right. Um, you know, it was done so piece by piece. It wasn't like, you know, one day we all sat down and we recorded, uh, you know, 14 tracks. It was like, you know, can you come in and play bass on three tracks? Um, and especially for some of the more dense ones that I'm playing multiple parts on that required a lot of practice for me, each five hour session might just take care of, you know, clarinet one and then, uh, and then trying to find another time that works for me and Phil to, to take care of clarinet two, you know, right. Uh, that, that took a lot of the time. But once I, I feel like, um, for the last couple months, um, maybe even half a year, it's been pretty close to done with a little, a little thing here or there. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's strange. It's like, you know, it, it clicks a little bit and you try adding something else and you say it's not like it, it's not adding anything. So um, that's a good feeling when, yeah. when you feel like it's over full and you can and you can remove some things. The people on this record uh, come from a, a, a varied range of places and they all have careers in their own rights and uh, are all busy musicians. But as I look at this list, one of the things that makes me happiest about it, and again, I know I know you personally and well, is that this list is like a group of people I mostly know because of you, and they're musicians, you know, to whom I was introduced because of you. Even though, you know, quite a few of them are are well known and you know very active in their own rights, and I could have come to them another way, but I really like the idea of the album being made by a, a community of people with whom you have a strong bond. It. It's not like you hired random session musicians and had them come in to do three bass tracks or whatever. You are, for the most part, or maybe exclusively, working with people you know well and chose particularly because of who they are and how they sound. Absolutely. These are, you know, I say these are some of the best uh, musicians that I've that I've ever heard. And I say that sincerely. Um, I also happen to uh, love all of them and know them personally. So it, it you know, it may... It may be uh, slightly delusional on my part, but I think you would find uh, that they are, in fact, uh, pretty pretty high up there uh, in the world of of music. And yeah, it's it was such a pleasure, more than anything for me. You know, aside from um, you know working with Phil, who kind of co-produced who who co-produced. I say he co-produced the thing with me because he's he was there with me every step of the way, and he was always there with with insights on tracks. Um, the the pleasure of of not playing my instrument but being in the studio and working with um quote unquote producing these people who are just just absolutely just killer on their instruments um to work with them and to really feel out like how the how they can contribute to this particular track that may not have um a detailed idea for them as yet um so you know just for example, like uh, Mike Shavaro, who plays electric bass on a bunch of stuff, he was involved in the f- the first sort of group session where I invited uh, uh, him and Red Weringa and Jared Schoenig in to play some uh, backing tracks for a couple of the tracks that I knew were going to have rhythm sections proper. And at the end of that, I asked each of them to kind of just sit down and improvise and just improvise freely. Um, excuse me, uh, improvise freely and 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 just give me something. And it's in some sense, it's very selfish to to ask, you know, people who are fantastic to just sit down and give you something um, and trust you to 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 do something interesting with it. Um, and I don't think I could I would have had that trust from people that I didn't know. Um, but yeah, also just in general, I know that I know all of these people's playing and I I wanted them to come in and just add 
add themselves to it. We're going to uh, try something that I I don't do very often on the jazz session, which is essentially giving people a a track-by-track guide to this record. And the reason I want to do it this way is because this album covers too much ground to talk about it as if it were... I mean, it is an album, and it holds together, and it obviously comes from the mind of one person, but I also think that it it spans so much territory that people could benefit from us actually kind of talking about the tracks one at a time. Plus, that's going to give me the chance to, you know, to ha- highlight some of the people who are uh, who are playing on these, you know, who are all just world class musicians. And I kind of like the way the album begins with this piece called "Sprung Up, Wound Down," um, which is one of uh, many original uh, pieces on here by you. One of the things I like about it is that it's almost. Uh, I don't like the word deceptive, but it it is a bit of a red herring, I think, at the beginning of the record because you could, except for the uh, audio piece that's at the the spoken word piece, I think you could believe, okay, I'm going to hear kind of one of the modern jazz records that everybody's making these days, and very quickly I think it becomes apparent that that is not what we're in for, especially by the time Phil uh, Weinrobe comes in on the banjo. Yeah. And I wonder about the sequencing and, and putting yeah. this first, and I'm, and you can completely feel free to disagree with anything I've characterized there, but I kind of like the way it, it sets us up, and then we kind of get the, either get the rug pulled out from under us, or we're at least shown a completely different path from the one we think we might have started out walking, which I really enjoy. I agree. I agree with you 100%. I, I'm pleased that you that you felt that way about it. Um, You know, you, you always... Uh, you think about leadoff tracks on records and a lot of times it's like that's that's where you put the the one that you want to hook people with right so you know it could have been it could have been the three minute um you know burner and that would have hooked people and said yeah 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 so i love the idea of having that sort of burner idea uh but then almost immediately i mean it's it's just a couple choruses of this sort of standardy thing um in seven uh that that immediately sort of breaks down into sounds from my old block in Brooklyn. Uh, and then you just hear a bunch of um, layered improvisations from Shavaro with some, you know, improvisation from me and James ship on vibraphone. It's, I, I love it. I love that. It's it, the, the, um, the structure of it is very much not something that you hear very much. It's very much not something you hear very much. Thank you very much. I'll be here all day <laughs> in the sense of like, you know, you think, uh, especially within the jazz world, you might start out quietly. You might, ba- you know, add some instruments as you go, and then you play the head, and then somebody solos, and it reaches a peak, and then it kind of comes down, or maybe it, you know, will will peak at the very end. Uh, but it's so rare, it, at least it was to me, and I I was excited about the possibility of it to kind of end a tune completely down <laughs> from where it started. Like you start in this, you know, balls to the wall you know, seven, eight fast groove. And then you're just kind of like cut off in the middle and suddenly it's like a meditation. And by the end of it, it's, it's almost even hard to remember where we started. Um, I, I just love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, and in fact, just on a, on a technical note that the sprung up the, uh, the tune that sort of begins it, um, that was, I would say, uh, co-written, um, by Jared Schoenig. That was one of his, solo improvised drum pieces that I um, sat with for a month or two and eventually wrote something around it. So all of the rhythmic things that uh, that ended up sounding like, you know, we hit, we hit together either on purpose or by accident uh, were sort of composed in there. So I also like this idea of a, 
what sounds like a modern jazz record coming together in a way that is completely antithetical to <laughs> to that. You know, when Jared was playing his part, he heard nothing else. Um, I just I love it. I love that um, messing around with the with the form that way. And there's also something to my ears the the banjo to me is one of the most organic sounding instruments at least in my own personal sonic palette when i hear when i hear a banjo played i know i'm listening to human a human being and there's something beautiful about and of course the rest of it is played on acoustic instruments too well i guess the the bass is electric but the it's all played with with, yes yes, thank you with (laughs) you know with flesh and wind and and strings and and all those things but but by the time we get to the banjo i feel like Especially because there were some some audio actualities throughout the piece, and mm-hmm. I feel like the banjo kind of grounds us in this real way. Like says, this is all of this is real. It's real music made by real people. Uh, there's just something something about it that kind of pulls me right into the moment and and right into the room with the musicians that I that I really appreciated. Yeah, and and I will say that that I I love that that is the sense that you get because. You know, from my perspective, that is not at all <laughs> how it was done. So, you know, it what on an individual basis, all of these musicians are just are are human and giving it in. But it is, I I love how weirdly we did it. You know, I like that there's this sort of aura of of otherworldliness about it that it doesn't feel like all these people are just in a room jamming and and playing off against you know against each other. Tell me about the 25 seconds of music uh, that follows. Sure. Um, so there is a track that was an unreleased Beach Boys um, sort of chorale. It was Brian Wilson's uh, first look at a tune called Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder that appeared on uh, Pet Sounds. Uh, so in this little thing, you hear not, none of that, uh, or it, it, I think it appeared as a background in the in the actual song. But it it struck me so hard. It's he was able to write such beautiful um, uh, chorales. I mean, that's literally what this what this is. Um, Will you define I, that term for people? Uh, just like a multi-voice, um, you know, like Bach wrote a bunch of them. Uh, I feel like you'd know it when you heard it. Um, sure. Usually uh, four voices uh, singing um, some sort of chordal structure um uh, or excuse me harmonic structure um and you know it moves around and and but they're generally pretty short um and this is no exception uh but yeah so the way that this one was done was just i recorded all the all the voices um singing all the parts that that brian wilson did on his um and then kind of layered various things on top of it uh sort of to again maybe uh deny you that feeling that you just had listening to the banjo and feeling that right in this um you know with this so very computerized feel um against a very organic you know choir basically 
Just moments ago, you mentioned the drummer Jared Schoenig, and actually about 30 seconds before we uh, started recording this interview, I was chatting online with Jared and telling him how much I loved his playing uh, on Sex and Candy, uh, your your cover mm-hmm. of a Marcy Playground tune. And he responded in what I thought was a, a completely typical for Jared kind of way and uh, and a way that I, I think probably everybody on this record probably feels about it. He said, I'm just so proud of Josh and the way this album came out. What a sweetheart. He really is. I mean, he's a he's a great human being anyway. um, But I I just thought that really that really spoke to the fact that although you you kind of cast this as, you know, asking these busy musician friends of mine to kind of do me a favor. It doesn't feel to me like anybody approached this in the spirit of doing a favor, but more that someone that they respect is making something they'd be happy to be part of. And I, you know, I, I obviously Jared can't speak for everyone, but I, the, the feel of this record feels very much like that, like a community coming together to make music, uh, which I, which I really enjoy. Yeah. And part of that is, is giving the people, uh, whose time I'm asking and whose talents I'm asking for, uh, something interesting enough to, to justify that. Um, so I, I love that, that he is into it and, and proud to be a part of it. Um, I'm, I, th- I'm thankful for, you know, everyone that's been a part of it seems to be, uh, relatively into it, which is, I, I don't know how rare it is, but it's, it's wonderful, <laughs> you know, as somebody who's made this and who's taken a lot of time and taken a lot of liberties, um, you know, we'll talk as we get through the record about, about some liberties that I've taken with Jared, uh, his playing. I mean, for example, just the first tune we talked about, he, he had no idea what I was going to do with it. So just this, this trust, um, I, you know. I love them. I love I love all these guys. It's a pleasure to have them. Tell me about uh, Sex and Candy and Marcy Playground, because honestly, I had never heard of uh, Marcy Playground until whatever the very first time was. You sent me one of the versions of this song. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a certain generation, I guess. Um, this this record came out. It was a self-titled um what do they call it? Self-titled? I don't eponymous? Know. It was called eponymous. Thank you so much. It wasn't the REM record. Uh, it was called Marcy Playground. Uh, it came out in 1997, I think. Um, and I, I just remember it being everywhere at a certain point. And I did get the album, but I only really spent time listening to this one track. Um, I remember the video that, that played around uh, MTV at the time. I think MTV was playing videos at the time. Um, it had <laughs> the guy... I had Wozniak, the, the lead singer, his head was poking through this um, hole in like a like a Tim Burton <laughs> okay. um, crazy scape. Um, it was blue and yellow, blue and yellow, like checkered landscape. And the, someone let loose a spider and it was crawling around his head. It was so weird. <laughs> and it had nothing to do. I mean, I say, oh, it had nothing to do with the song. Meanwhile, I have this album <laughs> with references that are that look completely crazy, but to me, they make sense. Anyway, it was, it was all in my life. And and there was a period where I totally loved the song. There was a period where I totally hated the song. And part of the reason that I wanted to kind of attack it with an arrangement was to embrace this, um, this, uh, these, these multiple feelings I had about it. You know, I mean, I, I feel like there's some songs from your youth that you just have strange feelings about, like you, you like them, but they also kind of you know they they're a little prickly so this was one of them for me so it was fun to to attack it and especially 
uh, to attack it in this kind of wildly not rock way um, to use, you know, some Bulgarian rhythms, um, but to keep that chorus in, in four. And um, it was fun. It was fun to do. And it was a pleasure to have Alex Foote play guitar on this record. Uh, another great guy. And the I have to say, and these actually are two names uh, about which I don't know your opinion, but the two names that jumped into my head, I can never tell if it's obnoxious to reference other musicians while talking about an album. But anyway, the two names that jumped into my head uh, when listening to this arrangement were Frank Zappa and Egberto Gismonchi. Uh, this, these, this arrangement, the interplay, the guitar, it just really reminded me of both guys. I wonder if either was any influence, and if not, that's of course totally fine, but those are the two <laughs> things that popped into my head at least. Uh, I mean, Zappa is an, is an influence in some sense um, generally, uh, but neither neither particularly for this song. Um, uh, and maybe Zappa for some of the, you know, genre hopping. Sure. Um, but but not nothing uh, nothing so particular. The I feel like the the references are pretty on the nose. Like, um, you know, when I when I do Eddie Harris's tune, the the root is Eddie Harris, you know. Sure. So for this tune, the this is uh, Bulgarian music and Marcy Playground, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, but I mean, I, I I love both of those musicians' work. Sure. Yeah, I, we certainly don't have to shoehorn anything into <laughs> anything else. That's so fun. <laughs> You're welcome to actually have your own opinions as the creator of the record. Uh, <laughs> I like that. I mean, I like if that has if it has some sort of um, resonance for a listener that I don't have. I love it. It's the same as you know anything else. I like to have my own resonances. You know, when I read certain authors, and and it certainly, you know, it's my it's my joy. It's the listener's joy to be able to pull what they what they will. choose but this the next track might be the most josh rutnery track on the record um which is a, a clean well-lighted oh piece, uh, which which some people will recognize uh as the name of a, a short piece by uh, ernest hemingway and uh, the text which is uh, spoken here by uh, joe laurie who's also a, a brilliant singer but uh but reads in this case uh comes from just one paragraph um, of a clean, well-lighted place. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you talk about the, what meaning this this has to you and how it made its way onto the record? Yeah. So this was a story that I liked a lot um, when I was uh, in college. It's a very it's a very dark story. Um, it takes place in this cafe. There's an old um, an old patron and two two waiters who kind of talk to each other. Um, but this par- this paragraph, especially the the uh, Lord's Prayer, where the word nada just kind of keeps popping in, um, taking the place of words, and and at the end of it, you know, hail nothing, full of nothing, nothing is with thee. I the the darkness of it all, the emptiness, the despair, 
you know, it speaks to a college kid. (laughs) 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 Um, No, it it just, it was completely beautiful to me. And I had written this, this background thing that, you know, felt it never had anything on top of it. What you hear in the background is basically how that piece exists. Um, So I liked the idea of having some sort of thing on top of it. Um, but the idea of writing a melody proper didn't didn't suit me. And it was funny, when I sent you an early version of it, you definitely, I think your first reaction was, I want to read a poem over this. Right. <laughs> you know, which is like, <laughs> which is what I was thinking as well. Um, you know, and so anyway, the the, the dis- despairness and the despair of, of the harmonic stuff that's going on in my mind when I hear it, um, it's, it's moody to be as, um, banal as, as I can. Um, yeah, they just, they seem to line up and then, you know, I had asked Joe if she knew anybody who might be interested in, in reading in the end, I just asked her to do it and it sounded great. And in fact, she does sing, um, some kind of wordless stuff in this, in the second half of the, of the track too. So True. Yes, that's she did, true. she did get to, uh, sing some pitches. Um, but yeah, it was super fun to, to ha- so she read that uh, completely away from the music. She had she'd heard the music, but she just kind of read this read the script in her own way. So it was really um, a fun challenge to to get it to to really really fit to pull the uh, the curtain back a little bit, which I guess is part of what we're doing here. But um, you know, I I do these uh, things every week for the for the station that you do uh, that you work at nine eight seven the freak um, and. <laughs> I, I end up doing that kind of stuff with my own voice uh, these days, and it's just something that I like to do, which is to to find ways of of sh- nudging phrases around so that they kind of line up, sort of, and sometimes don't, and sometimes do with with the backing track. That I find that just endlessly interesting. There's also something delightfully subversive about having an Australian woman read a, a, the text of possibly the most like masculine, um, hyper-masculine American author. I think it gives it a, it gives it a spin and kind of takes it out of that brusque and bearish Hemingway world into this whole new place, which I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, definitely. And that was, you know, so, so much of this album is indicative of this, um, this metaphor that I've had in my head for a long time of, of, and maybe I've mentioned this to you before, but the idea of shooting a bow um, excuse me, shooting an arrow from a bow and arrow into the side of a barn and then gingerly walking up to the side of the barn with a can of paint and drawing a bullseye around it. Um, this idea of like doing something and then figuring out why it's the best thing that you, <laughs> why right. it's the best thing that you could have done. Um, so in this, you know, so much of this is just sort of sitting with some decision that was made either by happenstance or just because I thought it would be fun or in, in some cases funny uh, and then thinking about why that might actually have been a great choice and then to embrace it somehow by either adding to it, doubling down on it in some way or just letting it be uh, letting it be a subtle, subtle thing. My own little secret. Turning off the electric light, he continued the conversation with himself. It is the light, of course, but it is necessary that the place be clean and pleasant. You do not want music. Certainly you do not want music. Nor can you stand before a bar with dignity, although that is all that is provided for these hours. What did he fear? 
It was not fear or dread. It was a nothing that he knew too well. It was all a nothing, and a man was nothing too. It was only that, and light was all it needed, and a certain cleanness and order. Some lived in it and never felt it, but he knew it all. It was nada y pues nada, y nada y pues nada. Our nada, who art in nada, nada be thy name. Thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada, in nada as it is in nada. Give us this nada, our daily nada, and nada us our nada as we nada our nadas. And nada us not into nada, but deliver us from nada. Where's nada? Hail nothing, full of nothing. Nothing is with thee. Am I right in thinking that... uh coming on the Hudson, the, the monk tune that follows, that is also a product of asking someone to improvise, right? In this case, uh, Red Waringa, who is primarily a pianist and keyboardist, asking him to improvise on the drums, right? Uh, yes. Coming on the Hudson was a choice uh, that I had made of a tune that I'd liked, that I wanted to do, um, but I knew that Red is a, Red is a great drummer, and um, I wanted to feature his drumming somehow, on the record so i had this idea originally to just have him do a solo version of coming on the hudson on the drum set and so i and and maybe you know with his uh with his approval we'll we'll release one of the solo um versions you know as a bonus track someday uh but um he he's just he's so creative and and wonderful that i just wanted him to do it solo and whatever he came out with that's what i would kind of work with um and i didn't want uh, I didn't want to play along. Um, I didn't want to hinder his his creativity uh, with me um, mucking around. So it's it was just lovely. I got to to listen to all these different solo versions where he would you know improvise for a little bit and then play the melody uh, one time through. And this one in particular, he he ended up pulling a bunch of um, fun rhythmic things out, uh, you know, toward the bridge. And it was a challenge to kind of arrange around that um, uh, but a pleasure
uh, tell me something about the uh, the the Todd Rundgreny uh, <laughs> next track, which I really love. I've one of the th- I've always loved Todd Rundgren's album Something Anything, and one of the reasons I like it so much is because he does almost every sound on it, and I've always enjoyed a musician um, really working with him or herself, and and finding ways in what obviously cannot be a live situation. Uh, well, I mean, in these days with technology, it could in fact be live. Sure. But generally gotcha. isn't a live situation. Finding ways to to work very closely as if with another musician with a recorded version of your own self. And I think that it works masterfully on Everything Okay With You, uh, which is an Eric Biondo piece. Maybe tell people who Eric is and then maybe talk a little bit about this. Yeah. This um, Eric Biondo in in my um, family of musicians is is just a just a wonder to behold. He's uh, he is a couple of years ahead of me at the Eastman School of Music. He's a trumpet player. Uh, he's a singer. He's a drummer himself. Uh, I think he plays some bass on on uh, his own records and some keys. And and in fact, he's been a big inspiration for a lot of people, um, you know, who came after him. Just as as a as um, kind of allowing yourself to sing, number one, uh, not having you know a singing voice proper, but just to allow yourself to um, express yourself by singing. Um, it was it was a he really opened up a bunch of people I know. Um, but then also compositionally, he has just been writing songs um, nonstop for years, um, and so he's just putting out tons of records and some of them are quiet and some of them are, um, meaning like quietly released. Uh, and some of them are, uh, are bigger releases, but he's just, he's been around, he's been playing. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about him, but this is one song that particularly stuck with me. Um, the lyrics in particular, I love. And one of the things that again, I, I deny the listener is to hear most of the lyrics. Um, I do, I do sing the bridge, but, um, it's the the general idea of the song is is just someone asking someone else uh, whether they're okay and listening to them, um, you know, going through uh, hard times. It's nice to have somebody <laughs> who asks that question, um, and it's nice to be that person to ask the question. But yeah, it, it, to to answer your question about um, working with oneself, uh, I am a pleasure to work with. <laughs> um, really easy to get along with. Um, this this one, like a lot of the other ones that involved me um, multi-tracking, it's it's uh, it's very frustrating sometimes. But once you get to a certain point, it can really uh, pop. You know, I there was a time when um, my friend Evan uh, Gregory, who plays piano um, on one of the tracks on this record, he was showing me a bunch of barbershop quartet things, and uh, I you know it's it's such a joy to sing with four other people. And it's funny how you can have four people with generally speaking, mediocre voices that once you get that fourth voice in there, everything can kind of lock in and sound, uh, great. And I, I noticed that a couple of times where if it's missing one of the voices or one of the, you know, one of the parts, it feels empty or it feels goofy or, or out of tune or something. And very well may be, but then linking in that, that, uh, that other part, it can really come together. So you, you can be surprised in ways that you might not be uh, with a you know larger group live in a in a studio. Ooh, 
we've reached the halfway point of our tour of Rockaby Battleship, and uh, we get to the uh, by far the longest track on the record, which is uh, Eddie Harris's "Wait Please." One thing I've always liked about you over the years um, is you are one of the few people I know who who is in fact actually open minded about music. I think a lot of people think <laughs> they are. That's so sad, Jason. But uh, well, I think a lot of people think they are and would say they are. But I remember I've had many conversations with you over the years in which you have mentioned some particular thing that I never would have thought of. Like, uh, and well, the reason I think of it in this case, although this is more channeling the 70s, um, many times, you know, you and I have talked about people like Kirk Whalum or, or, you know, 80s saxophone players who were on, you know, big hits, you know, in the era where there was always a saxophone. And, and I, I've heard you many times really not only talk about but also reference musically – in your playing with respect, you know, some of these uh, saxophone styles or players who, uh, and I'm making scare quotes with my voice here, serious saxophone players don't necessarily refer to. And I've always loved that about you as a person, but I also really like that kind of saxophone playing. And although that's maybe slightly far afield from this track, I think it does inform this track a little bit, this idea that there are more ways to play the saxophone and more approaches to saxophone playing than what we may have now become used to through familiarity. And I think Wait Please showcases that. think you you might be right um i mean i think you're right and i appreciate you saying so uh but um yeah it's it is it is a style that that is i think what it is is that it's that it's on the cusp of something that's that could be distasteful for a lot of people and i'm trying to think of you know it's like um Sorry, I'm pausing. <laughs> Through the magic of editing, no one will ever know you paused. Uh, keep it in. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> I'll just um, add, like, I'll multiply it by, like, ten times. It'll be a whole... <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's an hour in the middle. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you have if you have somebody who's who's really good at this style, for example, if you have Eddie Harris who can play, can play the crap out of this style, and then you have a bunch of people who are copycatting, you're going to... And if those are the people who sort of become really famous in the names, you're you're gonna have you're gonna look uh, you know you're gonna give the hairy eyeball to Eddie Harris if you haven't heard him, um, you know if it reminds you of of the uh, the people who are worse at it. I I like to think that I that I take this type of playing seriously enough to have worked at it and also um, you know I'm using as reference points um, singers that that are really good at it as well um so i i appreciate you saying that it i think you said that it that it feels uh good or at least not distasteful to you to hear um 
tactical yeah, played it, in this it way. It feels authentic because I know you're not... You're not doing it archly. You're not doing it with a raised eyebrow. Or at least I don't believe you are. No. Because I've heard you talk genuinely about your affection for this kind of playing. And so I, you know, I don't hear this and think, uh, you know, here's somebody who just thinks it would be fun to, you know, to ape this style for a little while. It feels to me like it is as much part of you as anything else on the record. Yeah, I, I would have been happy to put out uh, just an hour of that song um that eight bar song <laughs> <laughs> uh and it, it would have made me happy um the listener may have you know but one of the challenges of that song for for me was to really be patient um you know to take the take the injunction of the title uh seriously um and hold back that that's it that to me that's a tough part of the style if you listen to a lot of the vocal music in that style um, you know, the melodies are repetitive and what makes the songs interesting are the lyrics. Um, and so as a, if you're an instrumentalist covering, you know, um, a song by, you know, Macy Gray or something, you're, you're going to end up repeating a lot of lines, you know, um, because you don't have the lyrics to, to, to vary things. So I love this idea of, of having instruction in the title to, to, wait and to just be patient um, and to really try to stretch that out and that was this was actually one of the few tracks that we recorded maybe the only track that we recorded live with the entire group uh, in the studio The group in this case being Mike Chavarro, who we mentioned before on electric bass, Joby Gale on drums. And actually, a little surprisingly for me, uh, because I uh, he's been on the show before, but I only really know him in a in a stride and swing context, uh, the keyboardist on this is Dalton Ridenauer. Tell me a little bit about the choice of Dalton. I imagine this is because you know something about Dalton that I did not know, of course, his facility at this kind of music. But I was surprised when I looked at the, at the credits list and saw that's who it was, because uh, that's just not where I think of it. Yeah, well, uh, Dalton is um, a, a truly monstrous piano player uh, through and through. And I, I, I just love Dalton's playing so much, and, and in particular, he's been a real uh, source of inspiration for me since um, we've been working together on this gospel band uh, project that I have called The Twelve Gates. He's, he is sort of like the glue that holds together the vocalists, uh, Sarah and Evan Gregory, who again appear on, on another track on this record, but kind of holds, holds them together with this band of people who are not necessarily, you know, steeped from birth in this music. He, he plays gospel piano the way that gospel piano should be played, you know, or at least in that, in that vein. Um, and so for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a big step to go from gospel music to, you know, funky piano. 
Um, it is it is funny to me to listen and hear in his playing some of his you know he he loves that that country piano style too, and you can hear you know if that is a vocabulary that's familiar to you, some of that stuff coming through. And again, I love I love the uh, joining together you know the pastiche of it all, hearing these kinds of licks that you wouldn't necessarily hear from someone who's who's really you know whose bread and butter is is making that music. Yeah, I felt like there was a little callback maybe to that kind of Keith Jarrett, Gary Burton era style of of country jazz piano, if that's the right set of terms. Yeah, I don't know to the, I don't know the extent to which uh, that's true for Dalton, but yeah, I I love that there's a bit of country uh, piano in there, and of course he's just you know his facility is great. One of one of the things actually that that ties gospel piano to this style of music is you have a lot of static chords so you might have like a, an a chord for four bars right so as a as a jazz pianist um you know <laughs> obviously jazz pianists who are amazing <laughs> deal with this very well uh but it's not it's not necessarily something that you learn right away this kind of like like what kind of motion takes place when you have a chord for four bars uh, and it's true in this too and you can hear how Dalton you know moves moves around um, on top of static chords and it's just uh, it's, a, it's a thrill it was a thrill to have him and Joe Joe Bagel is one of the he's the funky drummer um, <laughs> interestingly you know I, I, I when I went back to this uh, record I, I had forgotten but uh, but Billy Hart plays drums on on the original it's this funny like you know 19... 69 or 1970, 69 um, record, and it's it's Billy Hart playing these funky wow. drums for <laughs> it's it's amazing. Check it out. Check out you know all of this stuff. Just you know check out the original and then call me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks, you've got your homework, and uh, we'll have Josh's phone number in the show yeah. notes yeah. of this episode. to elegy I, I think the, the first thing i wanted to ask is is it for someone or something uh originally when i wrote it, it was uh, for my grandfather i think um it's it's come to represent a broader uh palette there's you know there's a good uh, sense of loss on a lot of this record um throughout uh, throughout this journey making the record um you know co- concurrently um you know my wife uh jen and i were going through you know, troubles trying to to build our family. So a lot of these themes kind of come from the the struggles that we experienced. Uh, and then, you know, in the end, uh, when it sort of worked out for us, when it definitely worked out for us, um, some of that thrill kind of comes comes through as well. So similarly to what I was talking about before, this um, you know, shooting an arrow into the side of a barn and then painting a bullseye around it, I. It it became it started out as something you know this record and it became you know maybe halfway through 
a real uh, a real journey to fit this this theme together and make it um, a real journey to you know to finding something through a bunch of disparate elements. Michael Moore um, wrote the next piece, which is called Breathing Out of Habit. And uh, I was introduced to Michael Moore at the time when you and I both worked at the same radio station in Rochester, New York. And when I was being introduced to him through the Jewels and Binoculars trio, you were already well-versed in his music and I think actually had had met him, spent time with him. Uh, so he was definitely someone I came to know more about and, and got deeper into uh, because of knowing you. Uh, he has a a huge library of music to choose from. Uh, why this piece? Um, it's it's a piece that he. It's not a very. I don't know how many of his pieces are very well known, but it's not a very well known uh, piece of his. When when um, when Red Weiringa and I uh, really pushed to try to get him and Jewels and Binoculars to come be guests at the Eastman School of Music, uh, and it worked out. Uh, he had sent along a packet of his music, and this was one of the pieces that he had sent. And I like what I like about it is it's um, it's well, it's very it's seemingly simple, right? It's it's the same rhythmic pattern for the most part throughout. Um, it almost feels like someone practicing jazz licks, um, which I like, which I, I like ironically, you know, I mean, I like the song sincerely, but, um, but it's funny to me that, that this is the song in his version. Um, it was, uh, I think he was playing alto and there's a trumpet player and a drummer and it's just the three of them. And it's just the swinging, swinging thing. And I liked, um, I liked that spare spareness. Um, and I tried to keep that, uh, but I did add a little, a little twist to it, a little bit of a, of an Escher, uh, as as Michael Michael Brecker's song, you know, references an Escher sketch um, <laughs> of of having two uh, two rhythmic pulses happening concurrently and really trying to see where they line up and making them line up at times. Oh, jazz titles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, was yeah, it was a different time. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> Thank you. 
Next, we really come to a showstopper, and every time I hear uh, Sarah Gregory sing, it just it kind of makes you just sit back in awe. Uh, just such an amazing, amazing voice, uh, and her control of it is incredible. Will you say something about a song that it feels to me has one of the I don't know, maybe the the deepest backstories on the record, but I could be reading too much into that. But Ballad of the Sad Young Men. I think if there's any record that reading deeply into things um, is appropriate, this might be the one. So I think it's <laughs> it's fair for you to feel um, like there's a deep backstory to all of it. But um, yeah, so Sarah, Sarah Gregory, um, man, I I agree with you. I I can't get enough um, uh, of her voice. She she is you know, one of the leads in this, uh, gospel group that I, that I put together, that's a lot of gospel soul. And I, I participate in her band that is a lot of, you know, kind of soul influenced music. Um, this tell people the name of that band, uh, Sarah and the Stanleys is the name of, of her band. Uh, fantastic. And, uh, always, always worth it. Uh, but she also sings, uh, with the Gregory brothers, um, in a bunch of live situations here and there. So, uh, seek her out there too. And she, she sounds just as good there. So, um, yeah, but I, she's, she's unstoppable. She's, she's actually one of the, one of the only, I can, I say one of the only just to soften it, but she's, she's the only person that when I, when I heard her group, uh, it was Sarah and the Stanley's when I heard her group, I, I made an effort to try to be a part of that group. Um, it, it was never something that I, felt comfortable doing in the past of like writing an email and saying, hi, uh, you don't know me, but I really liked your music and I feel like I could be, you know, I, even if I'm just, you know, hanging around, you know, playing rehearsals or something, I would be glad to do it. Um, I did know, um, Eli Asher, the trumpet player, uh, in the respect sextet and also on this record, um, Eli had been playing some, some horns for her, um, so I did have one little uh, connection, but it was still for me uh, a nervous Nelly. It was a real. It took a lot, but uh, but she. It was great. It was great. I love it. And so I wanted her to sing something on the album, whatever it was, and we we settled on this. This is a record. This is. It's it's a it's a it's a song from a show. Um, it was. I think it's referred to as the first and only beat musical. Um, <laughs> that it was a it was. I think it started in um, in uh, St. Louis. It, it opened in in St. Louis and then opened on Broadway in 1959. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Del Close was in the cast. It was like a real, um, you know, it was a real a real who's who of uh, of beats and improvisers. Um, but it was. And we should the, just say for maybe for folks who don't know, Del Close, um, one of the the fathers of the the improv comedy idea, and the guy behind, kind of cl- largely behind Second City, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the lyrics were written by Fran Landsman and the, uh, music was written by Tommy Wolf. And in fact, um, just to pull back the curtain a little bit more, the, the lead track, the lead off track on, on my record, uh, sprung up is, is a, is a contra fact. It was written over the chord changes of another tune that the pair of them wrote called spring can really hang you up the most. Um, that was also, originally from the same show but couldn't be included in the broadway version because of some legal issues i guess it was already in the public sphere it was recorded already by ella fitzgerald i think at that time and um the jazzers had taken to it so for some reason it couldn't be in the uh, show on broadway but uh, it had come from that show as well but this song uh, ballad of the sad young men 
uh, came from that show. The the lyrics are just uh, heartbreaking, <laughs> and maybe that's a theme of this record. There's a lot of heartbreak. Um, I'm a sucker for it. Um, but where where I actually heard the tune first, uh, I think Evan um, Evan Gregory had shared this record with me. It was um, Roberta Flack's first record called First Take, uh, that was um, produced by Les McCann and Ron Carter played bass. So it definitely was a you know it had its hands in the jazz world and i cannot um, recommend it highly enough gosh it's, listening to this interview really oh my good. god run yeah. out and get it yeah it's a really great record first take uh, roberta flack but she she just crushes this tune and you know sarah and i were kind of both fawning over it um and i asked her if she wouldn't mind uh trying it so you know she came to it knowing that there was a big um you know a lot of great people who had covered it in the past, but I really think she, she brought a ton of uh, herself to it. And I'm, I'm really pleased with what she did. All the sad young men Sitting in the bars Knowing neon lights Missing all the stars All the sad young men is really outstanding on this song and i i particularly love the fact that it it really gives no quarter i mean possibly the the emotional climax comes with the last two notes and it it just i feel like the song never lets you off the hook i mean the the lyrics are challenging and i feel like the song just it never gives you a moment to take a breath it really it's going to tell you this story whether you want to hear it or not which i i really like in the songwriting gosh yeah yeah it's really it's really um it's a beautiful song it's like the from the original cast recording to roberta flack's version uh, i think winton marsalis does an instrumental version of it it's it's just a gorgeous gorgeous song and the lyrics are are really really uh tough you know tough to swallow um and uh and it's you know especially from from the from the perspective of a woman singing it um you know it is written from a woman's perspective uh, and so for me, it's nice to be able to have these these words on the record not not coming from me directly, but you know I'm, I'm putting them out there. <laughs>
we come now to uh, 43 seconds of uh, synthesized magic in a piece called Wasted Time, uh, which features Brendan Ford and uh, Brendan McGrath and also you. Uh, tell me about this piece. So uh, I am a George Carlin fan, as are you. Um, yes. As are many other people in the world. <laughs> At least three or four other people, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, but George Carlin um, was a big just a big influence on me as a, as a youth. Um, I, you know, I listened to his, uh, cassette tapes in my, in my car, um, growing up and, you know, there's, there's something about his voice that even when he's not, you know, being sing-songy and singing proper, he just has this musicality to his voice that made his comedy pop and, and in general, just to my ear was just so enjoyable to listen to. And I remember being a kid and, and almost like singing along with with his routine. Uh, I didn't have all the words memorized, but I had the cadence and the pitch <laughs> memorized just because it was so um, so beautifully done. Um, there's a, a record recorded in the early 70s, 72, called Class Clown, that features, um, it, it's like a, a double, there's two things, it's... Um, uh, it's called wasting time, I think wasting time and sharing a swallow and wasting time is just him singing, um, you know, like songs from his childhood, just like humming randomly. Do you do that? Do you ever do that? He, he says, <laughs> um, and you know, being in the elevator and pushing the button and, and the sound that it makes. And basically he's saying, if you don't do that, if you don't go through life, humming randomly uh it's just wasted time uh in the elevator uh and i and then you know like sharing a swallow he just swallows into a microphone god i love the guy you know it's amazing yeah um, and he gets the whole audience to make sounds exactly exactly but on that same record he sings uh, muhammad ali's name um and it's just exactly exactly he goes through the circle of uh fourths fifths uh singing muhammad ali's name and it's just mind-blowing so i i wanted to somehow incorporate um his his cadence uh somehow so i found uh this track uh, wasting time something that i had listened to since i was in high school um and kind of uh adjusted it uh, you know he's amazing actually all you have to do is just adjust the the general pitch of it uh, a couple cents and then he stays you know within our system of notes uh for the whole thing it's amazing uh, but, uh, yeah, so I just sort of arranged around that, that, um, that track. It's, it's gorgeous. I love so it. So if you, if you laid the George Carlin track over this, how, how close a relationship between the two would there be? Uh, very close indeed. Okay. Um, <laughs> and in fact, um, uh, if you, if you, uh, go to buy the record uh, it's i actually included just as a as a treat um, as a as a bonus track you can hear the uh the track with the george carlin snippet laid over it um so you can actually hear uh carlin on top which which strikes me as um, even more beautiful but you know yeah it's, <laughs> it's it's good for the bonus realm but yeah I, it's just uh it makes me happy just to hear him do that. So it was, it was fun to kind of cop it and, and work around it. And, and part of the synthesizer stuff, it's these, you know, more like, um, pitchless. So I do all the, the, the mini Moog stuff, which is all the pitched, uh, synthesizers. And then there's a bunch of, you know, pitchless, uh, just kind of, um, you know, noisy things that, that we tried to kind of 
be be the audience basically the laughter and the and the crowd noise The son of the next composer has been on this show, uh, Lucas Ligeti, and the next uh, piece is Hungarian Rock, another thing that I was introduced to by you. Tell me about this. Uh, Hungarian Rock was was written by Georgi Ligeti, uh, and I think it's a 1978 composition. It was it was originally composed for solo harpsichord, um, and but the, the way that I came to it, there's a um, collection of Ligeti's music called Mechanical Music. Um, and one of the one of the pieces on it is Hungarian rock as played by the the barrel organ. Um, and that that version of it, the barrel organ uh, compared to the excuse me, the barrel organ compared to the harpsichord version, it's just so uh, it's so driving and so nonstop. Um, I mean, the harpsichord version is too, but the, having a machine do it, uh, it can just be unhuman, inhuman, right? Inhuman, unhuman. I don't know. Inhuman. But it, inhuman. Yeah. But that, to me, makes it sound... <laughs> or non-human. Yeah, non-human. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, more human than human. Um, but yeah, so so that was the that was the version that hooked me. And so what I is always a barrel wrote, organ? I don't actually know. It's sort of like it's sort of like a player piano. Okay. Where like you you program it in advance and you push a button and it plays itself. Gotcha. Uh, so the barrel is the thing that has the music encoded on it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So so that that's uh, yeah. So that's why it's able to kind of play machine like, um, because it's a machine. Uh, so anyway, I I just love this piece. It's also it's an amazing it's an amazing composition. It's a it's a chacon, which which is a a term that basically means this repeated uh, ground, this repeating. Um, the bass repeats, and then a, a short loop of a progression repeats, upon which this these variations um, happen. And if you know anything about Ligeti's music, you know that he's not shy about going crazy with with variations and rhythmic stuff. And and I just I'm blown away by the composition. And so I wanted to um, uh, you know record it as a larger group and with drum sets and electric bass and, and, you know, really, really give it the rock that he sort of envisioned when he maybe sarcastically wrote it for harpsichord. I don't know. Um, yeah. So, so this piece is, uh, Jared Shonig on drums and Mike Shavar on bass and Red Waringa on keyboard holding down the, the loop, uh, as it were, uh, upon which I play, I think, uh, some bass clarinets, some tenor saxophones, alto saxophone, uh, two two clarinets, and a soprano saxophone on top. Um, and that this this in the end was the most challenging from a recording standpoint uh, for me. And again, it was just because because I was taking on the responsibility of all these parts that that are that are quite difficult for me as a you know um, a saxophonist who 
generally is not asked to play things quite so difficult. Um, it really took some time for me to learn each of these parts and then, you know, schedule a session and go in for a couple hours and get, you know, one single layer down. So this track itself took several months just to get, just to get all the parts in. Um, but, uh, I think, I think, uh, it makes me happy in the end. <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm happy with it. Fractions Hawkeye comics, which are kind of this. <laughs> there you go, down at the mouth um, uh, version of the life of you know the least powerful Avenger. And when the next track, Randy Newman's Vine Street, came on, we were listening to this album in the apartment together. Uh, my partner said if they had to make a Hawkeye playlist, they'd put this song on it. And uh-huh. I said, I said why? And they said, well, there's this kind of great combination of like a you know a, a new orleansy feel and like a carny kind of atmosphere around it that just reminded them very much of this you know kind of gritty down in the mouth uh, version of this character mm. and you talked a lot about the kind of the pathos or the um the sense of loss uh, that kind of is throughout this album kind of you know present throughout a lot of these tracks and Vine Street for me is just, I mean, Randy Newman, I think, is one of the people who is best able to tear your heart not too gently <laughs> from your body if he chooses to. And Vine Street really has a a feeling of melancholy and longing that I, I just can't get away from when I hear it. Um, I hope you'll talk about this song. That's a that we made, but I'm sad to say. I love the song so much and and part of what I love you know one one of the things I love a lot about about songs in general like this is the story behind um, not just like where the song came from but but how the song has been passed around and and the versions of it that have happened and in this case there aren't there aren't a ton of versions but they're all closely related so Randy Newman wrote this record wrote this record he wrote this song uh, for Van Dyke Parks for Van Dyke Parks's first recording um, which I believe came out in 67 um, uh, called Song Cycle. That was Van Dyke Parks' record. And this leads off Van Dyke Parks' record. And what you hear um, starting it off is not actually the beginning of the song, but a little sort of demo tape sounding 
version of, of an old tune called Blackjack Davy uh, that Van Eck Parks either had a tape of somewhere and just played or like made something that sounded like a demo tape. And the whole um, conceit of the song is it's this this person kind of looking back on a on a career or at least on, you know, an old demo tape and remembering uh, their roots. Then there's a version of it that was the the Randy Newman demo version, which is just him at the piano. Um, and then uh, Harry Nilsson did a version of it where he started with a version that he did, I think, of a Randy Newman tune, but I could be wrong about that. That, again, is like the demo tape that's referred to in the beginning. That's a tape that we made, and I'm sad to say, uh, but I'm sad to say it never made the grade. And one of the things that I, <laughs> that I was insistent about uh, with... My, with the mastering engineer Matagolia was um, when when it comes to the transition between uh, Hungarian rock and Vine Street, I want them to come like one right after the other, so that in my mind at least, Hungarian rock, the thing that I spent the most time on, the thing that is, you know, could be considered the most epic thing on the record, uh, just didn't make the grade. <laughs> you know, it's that's <laughs> that's the you know that's the song that I'm sad to say didn't make the grade. Um, but uh, Vine Street. Uh, also, in my mind, has so many elements that that actually remind me of my life in Rochester when I was uh, in school. Uh, I lived on Gibbs Street, and so part of part of this was when I was singing this, I was thinking about Gibbs Street, and there were so many. Uh, and now, now that I don't have it, uh, the lyrics in front of me, it's going to be hard to remember. But there, there are certain things that it was. You know, they happened to me and I can and I can pull references for a lot of this stuff, like even sold a guitar today, never did play much anyway. When I was uh, it was either early college or late high school, I had a guitar that I didn't play very much and I sold it for two saxophone cases or traded it. And I had some regrets about it. But um, and just like sitting on a stoop and playing for her, like I, you know, I met my wife playing at Java's on Gibbs Street, um, this coffee shop uh, with the respect sextet. And anyway, there there are elements that to me will, there were, there were too many. It felt too coincidental. So I, I really loved uh, doing this, uh, this song. And uh, I got to feature Gray McMurray uh, on the middle section. Um, and Dalton right now we're playing a bunch of the, you know, sort of, you know, barroom piano style things. And John Pickford Richards on viola. This was a real, a real um, opportunity to stretch and get some, 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 really amazing players playing some uh, some beautiful music. The arrangement itself comes uh, from kind of pulling a bunch of different elements from the three different versions that I mentioned um, just a minute ago. The crack of the backbeat on Vine Street Swinging along on the wings of a song Lying secure, self-righteous and sure 
why we'd things to say that the people would pay to hear us play on And we have arrived at uh, the 14th and final track, not counting the the bonus version of Wasted Time. Um, tell me about the title of this track, A Journey Around My Room. Sure. Um, the title was um, uh, lovingly pulled from a, a book by an old, uh, I, I think he was French. Uh, the writer's name is uh, Xavier de Maistre. Uh, he wrote a book called, it was in French, but the, the translation that I that I have is called a journey around my room. Basically the guy got into a duel and was sentenced to, um, you know, quote unquote imprisonment in his room for like 42 days. Uh, and he wrote this kind of as, um, as a parody of like a travel guide. Like how do you, how do you journey around your room when you have to be there? Um, you know, what excitement can you find in these things that you see every day? Um, and, you know, given the whole uh, kid thing that was happening uh, to me during this time, uh, coming to a child, uh, I wanted to write a lullaby, and this was my my attempt at it. Um, and one of the things that I liked about having Journey Around My Room being the title is, you know, and especially now that she's three, uh, you know, timeouts are a thing. <laughs> the idea of being in your room uh, all by yourself, I love the idea of you know, I wish when I was a kid, I had thought about, you know, such journeys I could take, I could take around my room, um, you know, looking at my little stuff anew or the, you know, the white walls and, and seeing, uh, seeing everything from, from new eyes, making the most of time stuck in one's room. <laughs> don't know who he is or people who maybe have heard the name and never read him um, I'd like you to tell folks uh, why they should read one of the people that you've introduced me to and I think I, is one of the happiest results of our friendship for me and that's Donald that's Bartlemay okay. uh, well um, I just I find his writing to be uh, magical and um, ever inventive and hilarious um, he I don't know he just I just want to take phrases of his that I read and, and bottle them up and just, you know, like, I, I mean, it's, it's silly. I just, they make me, uh, they make me happy. It makes me happy to read. He's funny and he's smart as shit and he, he reads everything and, um, and he is influenced by, um, you know, writers from centuries before and pulls from them, uh, things that, that feel avant-garde, um, in addition to actually being avant-garde. Um, or, you know, whatever that means. <laughs> he actually had a funny thing to say about, about 
avant-garde at one point uh, in an interview he did for the Paris Review where he talked about how the avant-garde is basically like it all it does is it protects the the middle so if anything the avant-garde <laughs> is um you know like keeping the status quo <laughs> um but anyway i just i find him uh terribly wonderful to read um and he is i, I assume you're pulling him because he is the source uh, of the title right or, or i guess I, I i put a quote up uh, also from that same story he, he put out a story in 1966 in the new yorker he wrote a lot of short stories for the new yorker uh, that were collected and you should check them all out. Um, but, uh, this one is called see the moon and it, it's, it's main character is, is going to have, uh, a child, um, among other things that happen in the story. But, um, that is one of the, one of the storylines. And there's this, uh, this line <laughs> that, uh, well, should I just read it? Sure. You may as well. <laughs> I, Cause I think I have it here. Give me one second. I'll pull it up. Okay, so from See the Moon, he says, uh, what you don't understand is, it's like somebody walks up to you and says, I have a battleship I can't use. Would you like to have a battleship? And you say, yes, yes, I've never had a battleship. I've always wanted one. And he says, it has four 16-inch guns forward and a catapult for launching scout planes. And you say, I've always wanted to launch scout planes. And he says, it's yours. And then you have this battleship. And then you have to paint it because it's rusting and clean it because it's dirty and anchor it somewhere because the police department wants you to get it off the streets. And the crew is crying and there are silverfish in the chat in the chart room and a funny knocking noise and fire control water rising in the number two hold. And the chaplain can't find the Palestrina tapes for the Sunday service and you can't get anybody to sit with it. And finally, you discover that what you have here is this great big pink and blue rockabye battleship. It's perfect. It's, it's, so, <laughs> it's really, it's really great, and that's a paragraph. It's, it's a whole story. Yeah, so. he's, he's just brilliant. So I, yeah. I, I also can't recommend enough that everybody should read uh, Donald Bartleby. The, the cover art of this album is uh, a, a photograph of a really cool piece of embroidery um, with the words "Rockabye Battleship" across the top, and then a, a battleship in the kind of center of the field and your name down at the bottom and what looked to me to be the, the lines from the game battleship uh, also embroidered. Will you tell me about who did this piece and the, and the concept behind it? Absolutely. Um, this was embroidered by my friend Dolly Hade. Um, Dolly is, is a, a fantastic uh, embroiderer. <laughs> uh, she, she does some fantastic work. She, yeah, I, when I saw her work, I was like, it would just be fantastic to have, an album cover that is embroidered. You know, I've seen uh, some cross-stitch <laughs> albums in the past, um, but she just does such lovely work that I wanted to uh, get her involved. And she was kind of instrumental in in designing that um, that grid that you noticed um, that had the 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 old game uh, vibe to it, uh, the wavy um, ocean lines sewn in. Uh, and that, I mean, look at the ship. It's, uh, it's fantastic. She crushed it. Um, very, very, very pleased with her work on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've been talking with Josh Rutner and, and taking a guided tour of his album, Rockabye Battleship. Uh, it's just a, a sprawling and gorgeous record. And, uh, after all these years of work, I'm, I'm so happy that it uh, is out there in the world for people to hear. And, uh, I've really had a pleasure talking with you about it, Josh. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to walk down memory lane of this record with you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jason.
music by Josh Rutner from his album Rockabye Battleship. Thanks to Josh's band, the Respect Sextet, for the theme music to this show. Find them online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. Please consider supporting the Jazz Session with your membership. To learn more and to become a member, visit thejazzsession.com slash join. You can also support the show by starting your Amazon shopping at thejazzsession.com slash Amazon. Thanks. The Jazz Session will be back in two weeks with another episode. In the meantime, support live music wherever and whenever you can. Then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.